we really have to be willful and we have to be strong about making the choices that are more difficult today that lead to things being less difficult in the future. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Adam Grant, and it is, productive givers focus on acting in the long-term best interest of others, even if it's not pleasant. My guest today, my friend Dory Clark, is one of the world's most respected thinkers on personal branding. She's a best-selling author, professor, coach, and consultant who helps people transform themselves into thought leaders on their areas of expertise. Dory is the author of four books, has lectured at Duke, Harvard, Stanford, Wharton, has consulted with companies such as Google, Morgan Stanley, Microsoft, and many more. Her latest book, The Long Game, will be available by the time this podcast launches. Dory, welcome back to the Elevate Podcast. Bob, I'm so glad to be here with you. Thanks for having me. So you shared a lot about your backstory with us last time, um, which I encourage people to check out that episode if they want to hear more. But let's focus on, on, on where you are right now. I know a big part of your career is consulting and traveling, giving speeches and lectures. So what's the past 18 months been like for you? <laughs> the past 18 months has definitely been a lot less traveling to give speeches. That is for sure. Yeah. Um, I... Uh, yeah, and the Delta, the Delta variant, of course, is uh, is upending all kinds of things. I was uh, going to be attending or speaking at three different conferences this fall that have now all been, all been yeah. transferred back to virtual. So we'll see. But part of what has been really fascinating for me, which kind of ties in to the premise of the book, The Long Game, is starting in around 2015, that was the year I, I reached peak frenzy with my speaking. I gave 74 talks that year, which I realized was too many. And uh, I figured I would cut back because it was, it was just ridiculous. I was flying all the time. I was constantly sick. I had colds, you know, all that. And so I realized it was not sustainable. And I thought it was not sustainable for two reasons. One was I was sure that as it does, the economic cycle would turn and there would probably be some kind of a recession and there would be cutbacks in conferences and conference speakers. And so I needed first, to hedge first my First thing to go, right? Yeah, yeah. always. <laughs> and then the second is I thought, you know, if I actually got sick or there was some kind of a problem, like, and I just couldn't do it, that could create a blow economically. And so I started to get really serious about online courses and creating, uh, creating a lot of them, creating kind of an ecosystem around it. And I did that with the future in mind, it was certainly long-term thinking. I was not in any way predicting the pandemic, but the good thing about a lot of long-term thinking is that when we are preparing for one scenario or a couple of scenarios, oftentimes there's surprising overlap. And so those decisions that I made you know, five, six, seven years ago ended up protecting me and protecting my business during COVID. So even though the keynote speaking went down to zero, it was actually still a very financially successful year for me. And I think for me, that shows the power of long-term thinking is that we can we can really take small steps that are able to, sorry, cat <laughs> in front of microphone here, take, we can really take small steps that uh, in surprising ways are able to pay off. Well, actually, if you think about what happened during the last 18 months, I, I would argue that there was just a five-year acceleration of trends that were 
already in play, right? And some people I know got scared. Um, I know a couple of colleagues who had a personal training business in Canada, you know, in-person personal training network. And for years, they had wanted to build a tech platform and make it more remote. And they actually just went all in and accelerated the tech platform like three years and launched the distributed virtual training business. I mean, did things, you think, pivot or was it just an acceleration of longer term trends (laughs) into the short term? Well, I think for sure, um, there was a lot of both, right? Uh, Many times people pivoted quickly and were able to be pretty successful. I mean, I think about a client of mine who's in one of the masterminds that I run, a great guy named Robbie Samuels. And his expertise, he literally wrote a book about this, was how to network successfully at conferences. And he would be like an advisor to need need to pivot in that case. Yeah. (laughs) You for sure need to pivot if that's your expertise. And so he decided, you know, he had a lot of experience at a fundamental level. He did what I think all of us should, which is he said, okay, what's really my expertise? You know, on the surface, it's networking at conferences. In the bigger picture, it's about how do you create positive connections between people who don't know each other. And so he became a Zoom producer and a kind of virtual conference producer advising companies on how to get the most out of their virtual conferences. And he was able within eight months to create a six-figure business from scratch. So I think there's a lot of pivoting and a lot of creativity, uh, which is fantastic. I will also say, for me, one of the biggest things that we can be doing as part of long-term thinking, it's great to pivot fast when we need to, but it's even better if we can be taking small incremental steps all along the way so that when something weird happens or when there's a, a disjunct or a disruption, we actually don't have to pivot that much because we've been cultivating side bets that have just compounded in value over time. Yeah, everyone needs their little uh, dinghy, right? Escape boat sort of on the side. I, I don't think a lot, you know, case study that I've referred to and a lot of people refer to, and I'm not sure people are aware of it is, is the great example is Netflix, right? Netflix obsoleted their DVD business before they had to when it was a cash cow. And then people also, I'm not sure, totally aware of that transition, but they they then pivoted from, remember, they used to have every movie and they were like, this is going to be commoditized. We need original content. It's very rare that a business makes those sort of shifts. They usually lose to the company that <laughs> came out and you know, was willing to make that shift when, when they were like, oh, we're in the peak profit cycle. Uh, I just, I think it's a, one of the few cases where a company has done that proactively. Yeah, absolutely. It is It is so rare. And in fact, my friend Aaron Meyer, uh, who's a professor at INSEAD, just this year wrote a book with uh, Reed Hastings, the CEO and founder of Netflix, about their strategy because their management and leadership style is so distinctive and is so unique that um, a lot of people want to learn from it. Um, it's uh, a level of strategic acuity that's pretty rare. Yeah. So I'm curious, and then and then we'll dive into the book. Um, in thinking about the last year, you know, what were the, some of the key lessons you learned about education and coaching, you know, throughout the pandemic and remotely? Like, what what's different and what changed, or maybe what what did you expect and what did you not expect? Well, in in many ways, I th- you know I think like everybody. I got sick of Zoom and I think everybody yeah. got a little sick of Zoom. Like at first, it was so interesting. I mean, I think we probably all went through this cycle where everybody was like, oh, 
we're going to have these socials and these happy hours and we're going to do everything. And, it, you know, it was kind of this. Or we're going to get Michael Jordan to come speak at our thing for 10 minutes. Right. Yeah. Because he's, avail- right. he's available. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody was doing anything. Uh, Everybody was up for anything. It was sort of like, oh, fantastic. We'll do this. And then at a certain point, you know, a few months in, we all just reached this like, you know, if I have to be on Zoom one more minute, I'm going to shoot myself. And so a lot of the voluntary activities uh, sort of tapered off. And I, I think that for me, what all of that indicates, it is certainly true in terms of, you know, the long-term lasting implications that we realize that a lot of things that we used to assume had to be done in person do not, in fact. And so for anything that's a little bit routine, banal, not mission critical, it probably is going to be transferred to remote or web-based. I mean, it's just not that big of a deal. But as with all things, when something becomes more scarce, it becomes more valuable. And so because the bar has been raised, because it takes more now for people to say, well, yeah, I'd be willing to travel for that. Or for a company to say, yeah, I'd be willing to pay to send him to travel for that. It means that those times are more precious. And so actually one of the first things that I did during COVID was I raised my speaking rates because I realized, all right, it's probably going to be fewer engagements, but the ones that are going to happen, they're really going to make them count. And so if it's rarer, it's more valuable. And so uh, I think we need to start thinking of it in that way. Yeah, they're bifurcated rates now, virtual versus in-person. And I think people saying, look, it's really different for me to do an hour speech to your virtual thing from my house versus three days of travel for your hour speech, right? Exactly. All right. So let's dive into the new book, which has a lot of interesting threads. One of my personal core values is long-term orientation. So this really resonated with me. Um I, there's no doubt, like we live in a short-term world right now. I'm and I'm 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 a little wondering what's the chicken and what's the egg, which I'm sure we'll we'll get into. So, w- when do you think was the tipping point where short-term thinking became a real problem in our culture and sort of the dominant way of doing it? Because it seems like you know a week is a long time in today's culture. Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's so many nails in the coffin that we can point to. I mean, you know, some of it is about the change from everybody reading their daily newspaper to 24-hour cable news. Some of it is the change from cable, you know, 24-hour cable news to uh, instant social media in your pocket where you're not just watching, you know, CNN, but you're watching content and comparing yourself to influencers, real or quote-unquote influencers from around the world. Um, So a lot of these trends have been accelerating dramatically over the past, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. Um, But of course, there's always been the substratum in human nature that people like instant results and they also can have a a certain degree of hubris. I literally just finished listening to an audio book that I've been meaning to read for quite a while called When Genius Failed. And speaking Mm -hmm. of long-term. It's a book about long-term capital management, which was uh, a hedge fund that blew up in 1998. Smartest guys in the room. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was, uh, there were two, literally two Nobel prize winners who were uh, founding partners of this. They thought it was just completely invincible and it lost close to $5 billion and evaporated and had to be rescued by all the other banks on wall street. So 
there's sort of a competing tension, right? On one hand, this is how humans have always been, but also it's gotten worse and social media does not help. And we really have to be willful and we have to be strong about making the choices that are more difficult today that lead to things being less difficult in the future. And it sounds perfectly rational, but it is a trade-off that's really hard for a lot of people. But if you are willing to buck the trend and do it, it actually can lead to some real competitive advantage over time. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. And I know you talk about this more in a professional context, but I don't think it's anywhere more clear in a personal context in terms of our buying patterns, right? This was a Friday Ford a few weeks ago. I mean, we used to save and then buy something. And that's almost an extinct concept now. We are constantly mortgaging our future income stream for something that we want today when it's really the same thing, right? A a payment is just a forced form of savings that someone could make. It's just like, I need to have it now and then I'll pay for it in the future. Like, And that seems like a cycle you never get out of. So would someone who's doing that at home, be a, are these things congruous across the personal professional cycle, whether you're someone really willing to make these sacrifices for the long term? I mean, the other where, place where it's so obvious to me, I mean, think about government. Like we just... The climate change, you know, building levees and dams, you, you know, there's unlimited money to clean up the lat the disasters with no fights, but there's unbelievable fights over doing things that are preventative. Apparently, the major recommendation that was made to Texas years ago is to winterize all of its uh, power equipment, all, all the types. And everyone's like, well, no, that's expensive. And I, so, yeah, I mean, it's just everywhere. 
Yeah, it's so true, Bob. I mean, I was literally, I was online last night buying a pair of jeans. Now, mind you, I didn't get the cheapest jeans, but also jeans are not the most expensive thing you, in the you, world. You, you got a payment plan option, right? You got it. Yeah. Is that what you're going to say? You got a, yeah, yeah. I mean, I yeah, did not take the payment yeah. plan option, but it's like, you can pay for your jeans like over four months. Like, are you, it's a pair of jeans, like my God. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really crazy how all that has un- unfolded. And the way that I see this play out so often in people's professional lives specifically is, you know, we all, understand intellectually that a lot of the most important goals or meaningful goals that we might have are in fact things that take time, right? You have to kind of work for them. They take a long time. And we know that intellectually, we know intellectually that it doesn't happen overnight. And yet there's a real problem because there can be a major gulf, a a major uh, block of time in between deciding to do something and then getting to that place. And in between those two things, you are most likely not getting positive affirmation. You are most likely not having people say, you know, oh, good job, Bob. You're completely on the right path. Just keep it up. You'll do great. Like most likely you get nothing. Or sometimes you actually get people discouraging you and saying, you know, Bob, this, I, I don't really know if this is working out. I'm not sure this is really up to par. And you get all of these naysayers or this silence along the way. And quite naturally, people get discouraged and they give up. And I believe many of them give up way too soon because that's the nature of the beast is that you have to go through a dark tunnel where you're not getting a lot of affirmation to get through to the other side. And so in writing the long game, I really wanted to try to create a framework for people so that they could understand, you know, number one, what does it actually take to get to the place you want to get to? Number two, how do you chart your progress when it can be kind of ambiguous if you are actually making progress? And number three, how do you stay motivated? How do you actually keep yourself going when there's no feedback or there's negative feedback along the way? Well, I know you're not a, uh, I know you do a lot of research, you know, you're not parenting guru, but the, the, I'd have to think the prevailing parenting philosophy of the last 10, 20 years with millennials and Gen Z of removing the helicopter, the removing difficulty is not really conditioning people to handle the downs very well, right? I mean, a lot of, if it's hard, do something else. And that's not life. And and I'm curious too, if you see this in the great resignation, like I, one of the things that I really looked into this and I've talked to people and, you know, at our company or otherwise, there's a couple groups, right? There's you know, people who, you know, are working in a terrible company that they made it through the other side and they don't want to be in the trenches with them. And they're, they're like, look, I want to, you know, go to a different company. Totally get that. There's a group that said, after the last year, I realized I don't even want to be doing what I'm doing. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a marketer and I want to go be a farmer. Totally respect that. But there's a pretty huge group that I think I would actually argue the majority that just was like, wow, the last 18 months were hard. And by the way, I want to be clear. It was hard. If you were working, building freezers for the Pfizer vaccine and your company was growing, like it was still hard. You were working 20 hours a day if your company didn't have enough work. And they want to switch jobs just to eliminate that memory. I mean, I saw one study that said 90% of people were thinking about switching. I mean, if that is, first of all, I don't believe that by monster. That is true. That is endemic of, of believing that the grass is greener or that it's better somewhere else. Or again, no one's going to say that this was easy the last couple of years, but just jumping off the path 
because it was hard uh, seems another short-term thing. I actually think we're going to have a huge amount of boomerang. This is like dating when you're drawn to the opposite of what you were frustrated. You, I think you're going to see a lot of boomerang employees in the next six, 12 months who are like, yeah, it wasn't better. So, so I mean, do you think that that is part of what we're seeing right now with everyone kind of shifting and moving around? Well, I think, I think it's certainly possible. I mean, ultimately we've gone through this experience uh, that people have not gone through for a hundred years. And so it does enact a collective uh, psychological trauma, you could say. So I have sympathy for people who are just manifesting it in all kinds of different ways. Like, you know, I've got to get out of here. This is, this is crazy. This is not right. I, I hear that. And I think it's possible that some of it might be like, ah, it's too hard. I want to, I want to give up. But I think a lot of us have been both experiencing a lot of emotions and reevaluating yeah. a lot of things. But even irrespective of the pandemic, I think that where I see a lot of, a lot of trouble actually in, you know, and in some ways when folks talk about uh, some of the challenges with parenting styles and whatever. It's interesting because for many years, there's been a focus on how do you inculcate self-esteem in your kids. And I actually think, interestingly, that in some ways, one of the biggest challenges is that we haven't been effective enough at it. And what I mean by that is that oftentimes the kind of surface level thinking is, well, you inculcate self-esteem by just saying, oh, well, you're great. You're wonderful. That's not really what does it what does it do something hard and get self intrinsic motivation from it right that's that's yeah. exactly it it's people seeing for themselves that they are good because they've been able to accomplish something and get to the other side and so i think that for people who have not really flexed that muscle it's easy to get discouraged because the first time you hear you know something different some discordant evidence you know it's not like oh you're so great but instead gosh actually i don't think this is good enough i think maybe you should try something different the problem is they believe that person and that person quite likely should not be believed or they're hearing that for the first time in their first job at 22 right and like what do you mean my, my stuff is always great <laughs> i've been told that forever <laughs> yeah, you can go both ways with it. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes they're stunned because they're getting feedback. You yeah. know, one story that I share in the long game, which I feel like probably a lot of us in one fashion or another can relate to, is uh, there's a, a wonderful woman that I profiled named Ann Sugar. Very accomplished. She's an executive coach. She is, in fact, an executive coach for Harvard Business School, executive education, you know, writes for all kinds of publications. And so she had been writing for free for a business publication for about six months. And her editor there, who, mind you, was two years out of college, after six months of writing for them for free, she'd done 35 articles, fired Anne, and said that she thought that her articles were not creative enough. And Anne, of course, was upset, but she went she went around and she was asking friends and colleagues, you know, like, what did you do? Like, has, has anything like this happened to you? How do you kind of buck yourself up? And one woman that she went to said, you know, oh yeah, that happened to me. And Anne said, well, how did you approach it? What did you do? And the woman said, oh, well, I never wrote again. I knew that was going to be the answer. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And Anne was like, whoa, that's not what I'm going to do. Yeah. And so she got back on the horse and she started writing for another publication pretty much right away. She still writes for them equally prestigious and is doing great. But a lot of people get scared off for life, which is, which is obviously 
not the right answer if you really want to be making a difference and sharing and, your and, ideas. And how you give that feedback is important. I've always said if you there's a subtle difference between someone's behavior and their character, right? If you give it in terms of a hey, here are examples where this writing isn't creative enough versus you are not a creative writer. You know, the yeah. la- the latter is the stuff that damages. I mean, we have a lot of people at our company, it's PTSD of something that they were told like that, you are not strategic, right? That's always a versus these project lacked strategic insight. Those, yes. those types of comments really sit with people. They're, they're demons. <laughs> it is so true. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you have to be really thoughtful about that. So an interesting point you highlight in the book is that a lot of executives are really charged with being long-term visionaries, thinking of the long-term, but particularly in the public markets, you know, investors, you know, we have to measure the quarterly earnings. There's a push to actually move away, I think, from quarterly earnings for public companies, right? Because it really becomes a game. What do you think that will happen? Do you advocate for that? Like, is that, is this, this is a endemic problem in our sort of real-time finance world, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the the game, and it really is a game of managing expectations. Is so pernicious, and you know, even people that we that we think back on is like, oh, you know, those were the those were the good old days. <sighs> you know, we think about Jack Welch running GE, and a lot of his massive long term success was because they were manipulating earnings. Yeah. You know, his his mandate was you know, never miss the earnings uh, estimates, you know, always beat them. And they had some very creative methods, shall we say, of how to do that. And on one hand, you know, (laughs) yay, yay for the PR win. On the other hand, that's actually not really right. And it's also uh, very damaging over the long term, as we, (laughs) as we saw with GE's relative collapse afterwards. And so we do need to start thinking a different way. I think, you know, someone who, you know, for all his foibles and for all the concerns about his world domination, Jeff Bezos really is someone who deserves a ton of credit in this regard. He said from the beginning, time and again, aggressively, do not look to us for quarterly profits. That's not what we're doing here. We are going to reinvest and we are going to keep making decisions in the interests of the long term of Amazon. And you know, for years and years and years, you are not seeing very much of anything by way of profits. But then at a certain point, you are opening up a chasm between yourself and the competitors because they've given time for things like Amazon Prime and Amazon Web Services to be nurtured and come to fruition. And they are behemoths in the market now. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. 
That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, and you just made me think of something related to that and GE. It's interesting. It's the same principle. Like certain wisdom and experience in case studies like that that now come quickly, right? We need to see how those age with wine. Like, do they become good red wine or do they become vinegar? Because when I was in college and I took classes in the business school, GE was all the case studies. And if you've read the airplane interview case study, the Jack Welsh succession thing, this was the gold standard of how Jack Welsh did succession at GE. The three finalists And then ultimately, Jeff Immel, who stayed, have all gone on to destroy market value in every single company they were in. If you've gone through the data, like, and this was, this was the training mechanism on how to select and run a succession leadership process. And, and Immel stayed in the other two, Nadrelli, and I think went to run other companies and none of them were successful. So I always thought that was interesting. Like if you aged that case study over the long term, it doesn't look very good and you probably wouldn't teach it. That's exactly (laughs) right. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, you know, similarly good to great people yeah. point to you know so frequently that that those were companies that within many of them within a few years just absolutely collapsed and 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 so we we have to analyze what is being valorized at a certain moment in time and i we i mean social media has made we instantly criticize or or praise you know there is no waiting for the long run now which again keeps this pressure on the short term yeah yeah exactly So another thing I think you talked about in terms of calendar and scheduling is that, I mean, it seems kind of obvious, right? But if you want (laughs) to be thinking long-term, you need to create that space. So how do you do that for yourself? And how do you recommend other, other people carve out that time in their schedule? Yeah, well, I have I have a few key principles that I follow, and of course, the caveat is that in the month leading to uh, my book launch, you follow none of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, that I, is... I agree with that. I, I I said I felt hypocritical launching Elevate and destroying my physical capacity, you know, in the <laughs> while I launched the book. Yes, it is tragic. So with with that asterisk, uh, what I do when I am not launching a book is as follows. So number one. Uh, one thing that I actually have implemented and up until the book launch have been really quite diligent about. And I and starting again, October 1st, once the book is successfully launched, I uh, have implemented this again in my calendar. But for the past year, I've taken Fridays off. I realized that during the first six months of COVID, I basically thought the world was going to end imminently. And um if it was going to end, I wanted to vacuum up all the money that was possible because I thought I would never earn any more money because the economy would be gone. Yeah. So <laughs> I worked like a maniac and I decided it was unsustainable. So I started carving out these Fridays off to do kind of a combination of things, either sort of health or maintenance, like if I had to have doctor's visits or you know getting haircuts or whatever, yeah. or kind of creative things. I would um, go uh, take ping pong lessons every week on Fridays. So, you know, all kinds of stuff. So that was a piece of it to kind of refresh and reset. The other thing that I like to do is I divide my, my weeks into manager days and maker days. And that is a a concept that, that Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator, uh, put forward. He talked about it in terms of like different roles, but as an entrepreneur, we play all the roles. Uh, so I'm sort of doing both, but it's on separate days. So on manager days, those are my days for all kinds of meetings, interviews where I'm interfacing with people. And on maker days, 
It's quiet time, big blocks of time, and I'm able to do deep work projects. So that's that's how I break things up uh, in order to be able to be as efficient as possible. I'm curious, Bob, how do you handle it? Yeah, I use a similar thing. A coach mentor years ago, the notion of time blocking. So like my calendar is never free. Like people can't get it. It is pre-broken up for, I want to do X here. I want to have a four hour block of quiet delivery. Like schedule your priorities in there. I also do... Similarly, I, I started two years ago, what I call no meeting Monday and also helps because holidays fall on a Monday. And on those weeks, all your recurring meetings get moved. So I have no standing meetings on, on Monday and it actually lets me get ahead for the week, like get ahead for the day, get ahead for the week. I feel like I can clear out stuff and, and work on some of those long-term projects. Um, so I really relish that no meeting Monday. And again, the side benefit is there are these seven or eight times a year where when you had all these meetings, you had to then put them in the rest of the week on a long weekend and, and it became just even more, more crowded. So I, I, I like this nonsense, like there isn't free time on my calendar. There's time that can be booked for certain things, but there's also time that is free, but not, not available. Yeah, that's a great combination. I love that. Yeah, it's complicated. I, I, my, my belief is if you don't schedule it, it won't happen. Whether that's exercise, going out with your partner, hanging out with your kids, like, like you think all this stuff will just happen. And like the concept is you schedule your priorities, right? So if going out with your partner for dinners, you say it's a high priority, but it's the last thing to get anything left in your calendar, then it's really not a high priority, right? So someone once said to me, your calendar is show me your calendar and I'll tell you your priorities. So I think that's accurate. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So tell me about the slog. Yeah, there's a lot of slogging, man. <laughs> there definitely is. That could be the theme for 2020, 2021, right? Yeah, we were we were pretty much all all slog all the time. That is correct. Yeah. Well, you know, as we were talking about earlier, there's there's often just this period of time which can feel interminable when you are in the midst of it, where you don't know, you do not have the perspective to be able to judge whether something is not working or whether something is not working yet. And that is the emotionally toughest part because you might want to give up, but you don't you don't know. You don't know what's the right thing to do. And so there's a concept that I talk about in the long game which I call looking for the raindrops. And what I mean by that is that you know, you do you do want as a human to have some kind of data, some kind of validation about whether something's working or not. And what I've found is that oftentimes the problem is that we're so fixated on whatever the final goal is. Oh, well, I'm going to, I'm going to be named vice president or, oh, I'm going to get that book contract or, oh, I'm going to get on this show or I'm, I'm going to, you know, whatever the, the laurel is that we want. We're focused on that. And so anything that is not that actually doesn't seem that important. It, it might seem stupid or trivial or, or just not even worth noticing. And I want to encourage people, we need to start noticing those things because, you know, it's like, it's like when a rainstorm or a thunderstorm starts, it doesn't usually start with a deluge. It starts with like a few drops where you're just like, oh, wait, was that a, was that an air conditioner? No, no. Oh, I think, I think it's starting. Like, you know, you just don't know and you sense those things and the initial signs, the initial signals are often pretty weak. You know, it, it might be things like a client sending a nice email to your boss about you, or it might be 
that you're starting to get more inbound LinkedIn requests because you know what? People are starting to hear about you and be interested in what you're doing. It's just subtle enough that you might say, well, that doesn't matter, but we have to notice it and we have to appreciate it because those are the signs that it actually is working. Well, also, isn't it also, I I remember I wrote about this because I I was doing, do you know the grouse grind in Vancouver? You know, like it's this really painful one hour walk right up the side of the mountain. And and we were like climbing this mountain at the same time that we were like 75% of the way through our three-year strategic plan and people were stressed. And I, I realized like, you're pretty tired when you get like, when you're three quarters of the way up the mountain, you know, at the beginning, you're all you're looking up, like you can't see the top, but you're kind of exhausted, but you're almost there. It almost seems like it's the hardest, most dangerous point of the journey. So I think in your example, you could even be like so close to what it is that you wanted on your goal, but it just, it hurts. (laughs) Like it's just, you're just in the painful part of that phase. Oh, completely. Absolutely. That's the, that's definitely a key element there is if you can't see the end from where you are, even if you are really close to the end, it doesn't feel any different. You might think it or perceive it, but uh, the level of misery is uh, is still there. And we have to we have to find ways to slog through because the other side is so worth it. And yeah. most people don't make the effort to get there. Reminds me of the I think the Churchill quote: the the when you're going through hell, keep going. Totally. <laughs> yeah. So how much, if you're trying to make a more of a, uh, I was going to say long-term shift to long-term thinking, but that would be redundant. So whatever the better version of saying that is, shift to long-term thinking, how important is it to consciously unplug from some of the short-term instant gratification activities, the cell phone, the social media, the notifications? Like, Are these things that are actually conditioning us towards short-term? I think they certainly don't help. Yeah. Uh, because you know, at, at a minimum... Uh, we've probably all read the the studies about multitasking and distraction yeah. and things like that. Regardless of long-term thinking, even our ability to just get stuff done in the moment that needs to get done, like, oh, can I finish this email that I need to send without forgetting who I'm sending it to and having a million typos, that is going to be impacted if you're getting 20 notifications on your phone. So I think there's a lot of reasons to, to pull that out. But you're exactly right at kind of a larger level. The first section of the book, basically the first third of the book, is about what I call creating more white space. Because the the truth is, it's not that it takes a huge amount of time to do strategic thinking. I mean, in fact, no one has a huge amount of time. It just just wouldn't even be practical. It takes space. Yeah. That's exactly right. It takes mental space to be able to pull your eyes up off the ground, look at the horizon for a minute, and actually just say, am I doing the things I should be doing? Are the things that I'm doing leading me in the direction that I want? Just these kind of fundamental questions that you are never going to be in a position to ask if you're operating at 110% the entire time. So it's not it's not uh, like you need a year-long sabbatical, but do you need a little break in the action so that you can get perspective? Yes, and we do need to carve that out. Yeah, Adam Grant just wrote in his new book, um, Think Again, about, you know, he was talking about this, like just, you know, these shower moments, just getting yourself. And and he was saying that structured brainstorming actually like doesn't really work. People actually need the space to brainstorm and then come together and share their ideas. I, I really, I can count so many real breakthroughs I've had in a taxi in another city, or maybe probably more an Uber, uh, in, you know, 
in the shower, in, in something where you're just have that space to let your mind kind of run into it's more that unconscious space rather than, you know, it's working on something very cognitively heavy. Yeah, that's it's so true. There's been some really interesting research that I actually talked about in a previous book, Stand Out, uh, by a Dutch researcher named Op Dijksterhuis. And what he discovered is that some of the the best creative connections come when you know we can all sort of tick off the examples, right? You're uh, you're jogging, or you're in yeah. the shower, or you know something like that. You're driving, and it's because it's actually because part of your mind is occupied doing some kind of a rote physical activity. Right. And it it's kind of the perfect the layer. Yeah. Yeah. It's the perfect blend because it's not like you have to be concentrating super hard, which would take all your cognitive capacity. Um, but it distracts you just enough that you're able to make creative associations and be able to, uh, to think about things in a different way. All right. So if you could have, we're not going to give away the whole book here, but what's the, if people who read the book, what's the most important takeaway you'd like them to have from the long game? Oh boy. Well, there's, there's a lot of pieces, but what I will say is two things. Number one, at a really high level, the whole point of the book about playing the long game and the, the reason why I think it's so important is that I want to live in a world where the best ideas win not just the loudest voices. Most noise. <laughs> yeah, which seems like so often it's the case. But that's never going to happen if the people with the best ideas give up before they actually are able to come to fruition and really be heard. And because it is an elaborate process, sometimes a strenuous process, sometimes, uh, sometimes a process with a lot of detours, we have to be uh, able to persevere through all of that. And so I really wanted to create a framework to help good people with good ideas be able to push through to get them out there and, and make a bigger impact. So I think that's really the premise of the book. And if I was going to share one of my strategies in the book that's kind of a favorite of mine, I would say that something I'm a really big believer in is something that you know people who follow organizational dynamics or whatever are probably yeah. familiar with, but I would like us to apply it in our own lives. And that is uh, 20% time, which Google popularized. The idea is that employees would spend up to 20% of their time pursuing something outside of their job that they think is interesting and that they think can benefit the company. That's how Gmail was created. That's how Google News was created. It can lead to some interesting innovations. I believe that if we really want to prepare for the future, for an unknown future where you know, we don't even know what we're preparing for, but we're preparing for something, 20% time is so incredibly valuable. We have to fight for it. The easiest thing is just spend that time answering email. But if we fight for it and carve out that time so that we can learn and do professional development and just become better at something or some things that we are interested in and care about, those are the steps that we can take to actually prepare ourselves for the future, turn ourselves into Swiss army knives and just be a little bit more resilient. That's a great takeaway. All right. So I'm going to spin it off to you for the back to you for the last question. Can you share a personal and professional experience where you realized uh, maybe too late that you were thinking too short term and, and what you did to shift? You should have, <laughs> right. you should have known that was coming. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Oh man. Well, you know, I think that, um, you know, one place where and this probably comes up for a lot of people is 
there are often decisions that we know that we know we should make or that uh, you know, oh, this is this is the right thing to do. I should probably do this. I should probably quit my job. I should probably, you know, do X, Y, Z. And then we just delay it because it's too hard or it's too awkward or too painful. And never uh, gets easier. Yeah. I think, you know, and sometimes it gets worse. The more well, it actually it. always gets worse. <laughs> yeah. And so for me, in terms of short-term thinking, I mean, when it comes to my career, I feel like I can be pretty pretty rational and straightforward. I would say that when I think about mistakes like that, uh, it's usually romantic ones where you know it's not right, you know it should end, and you just you can't bear to do it because you don't, you know, you really love the other person, you want to be with them, and it's so good in the moment, even if you know that long-term it would be disastrous. <laughs> and so, yeah. uh, you know, eventually I have managed to uh, to pull the plug, but uh probably not when I should have. And so for me, that really represents the shift from the, the short term of like, oh, but I like her so much and we have such a good time together. And, you know, it's so, it's so nice right now to thinking about, well, what, let's play it out. What would it be like in five years? What would it be like in 10 years? And is this actually how I want my life to, to be? That resonates with me. Cause again, I, I, I can see around a lot of quarters. I'm good at thinking ahead. And then I, when I, you know, see that this car crash is about to happen. I then, you know, going and yanking the driver out of the car before it crashes is hard. And I start inventing reasons and trying to convince myself otherwise. And it's never, it's never made it easier ever. It just prolongs the pain in some way. So true. All right, Tori. Well, how can people learn more about you uh, and your work and where, where can they get your new book? Yeah. Thank you so much, Bob. Uh, well, again, the, the new book is called The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And folks can get that, you know, Amazon or pretty much any of the places one can obtain a book. Uh, but also, if folks are interested in turning the lens on themselves and thinking a little bit more deeply about how to become uh, a long-term thinker, I have a free self-assessment that they can download. It's the uh, Long Game Strategic Thinking Self-Assessment, and you can get it for free at doryclark.com slash the long game. All right, Dory. Well, thanks again for coming back and uh, wish you the best of luck in the book with a book. I know I know it's going to do great. We'll have you back for your next book. Thank you so much, Bob. Always awesome talking to you. All right. To our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Dory and her new book, The Long Game, on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode or the Elevate podcast in general, I have a really quick favor to ask. Particularly, could you leave us a review? And if you're an Apple podcast, it's super easy. You just select the library icon, you click on Elevate, scroll down to the bottom, and you can leave a review or a rating in about five seconds. So thank you again for your support. And until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. 
I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.